You're listening to season three of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.41, The Snake Eats Its Own Tail, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and I am entirely too hot today. And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta, and have I become brainwashed over the course of this season, or was this a good episode? Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 460 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporter, Paul P. This podcast would not be possible without your support. This episode releases on Saturday, July 3rd, which means... There are just four episodes of Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta left! One month until we wrap up Season 3, with many other important events coming up fast. A short hiatus, the podcast's third birthday, our annual promotion, and planning for Season 4, which will be very different than what we've done so far. We will keep making updates and announcements here on the podcast, but for all the latest MSB news, you can follow us on social media or on Patreon. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta Episode 42, The Girl from Core 3, or Koa 3 no Shoujo, Part 2. This episode originally aired on December 27, 1986. It was written by Endo Akinori and directed by Takamatsu Shinji, with storyboards by Takamatsu and Tomino. For our research this week, we have another installment in our meandering walk through the tale of the Heike, Plus, Nina has some research on a plausible etymology for Kiara's new mobile suit. But first, it's time for more radio-free Shangri-La. With danger on the horizon, Detective James Stryker is in the market for muscle. The client said I should bring some backup, and I figured she was right. I didn't know too many Earthnoids, and even fewer that I'd trust to have my back if things got dicey. But I started making calls. Yes, can I speak with uh, Desert Rommel? Oh, well, I wouldn't say we were friends. We worked together in the Zoom City PD before the... Uh... Oh. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Well, what about that kid who was always following him around? Uh, Nike? Mickey? Oh. Hey, Tog, you old scoundrel. How's... I'm terribly sorry for your loss, ma'am. Good morning, Mrs. Kobayashi. Is uh, is Hayato available? In Dublin? Uh, well, let him know I called when he gets back, would you? 
I'm headed back to space, but I'd love to catch up when he's got time. It turned out I knew even fewer folks down here than I thought. It was starting to look like I'd have to rely on my new house guests. You can call me uncharitable, but I didn't have a lot of faith in either of them. Even if this strobe character really did have a PhD in theoretical fisticuffs. But 90% of detective work comes down to checking just one more lead. So that's what I did. Hi, I got your number from a Captain Strobe Flanagan. He told me you know your way around a fight. Any chance you're available for a little freelance work? Just let me pack my ray gun. The detective gathers his party before setting forth. And at that very moment, a mysterious figure arrives at side six. It is none other than broadcast legend Tom Thompson. His earlier cooperation with the Neo Zeon channel was no more than a ruse. And as soon as he can, he disappears into the bustling space city. Meanwhile, Enraged by his betrayal, NZC's highest-rated ace, Nina Ninastadter, races after him aboard the cruiser Ninalon. In the bowels of the battle reporting ship, a precious cargo. Dozens of cold sleep pods containing her elite cyber news-type core. We're entering Side 6 airspace now, ma'am. Good. Tell Human Resources to thaw a dozen interns and have the mobile suit hangar start prepping the Kubele squadron with heavy news gathering ordnance. I want to report the second they find any trace of Thompson. Meanwhile, inside a nearby colony cylinder... What is this? Pressure. Tom. It's like... Someone is standing right behind me, breathing down my neck. Tom. Is that you, Toby? But I thought you'd found peace. Who's Toby? Ah! Hey, back off, buddy. How long have you been standing right behind me, breathing down my neck? Wait a moment. I recognize you. Have you forgotten me already? No, no, of course not. You were my mentor at TNN, before you were sucked out into space and lost forever due to a tragic accident. But that's not all. I am also your long-lost father. Huh. I sort of thought you'd be more surprised. Well, I guess I kind of already suspected. But how? After you took me under your wing at TNN, you always called me son. That's often just a figure of speech. And my personnel file has a note in it that says I was a, quote, nepotism hire. Employees really aren't supposed to see those files. And you kept muttering to yourself about some prophecy about how your own son would one day destroy you and take your nightly news show for himself. Speaking of which, can we revisit how I got sucked out into space? Oh, and your name is Tom Tom's father. Reunited at last! 
The Tom son and the Tom father retire to the latter's apartment nearby. Inside, our hero finds his father's recording studio. After the accident, I had an epiphany. The broadcast news business is on its last legs. The future is news on demand via Horrorcast. Did you find all of this equipment in a junkyard? Junkyards are a great place to find recording equipment. I'm still in the growth phase right now, finding my audience, looking for sponsors, my market fit, so to speak, but I'm excited to wake up early every morning, ready to hustle and grind and build my personal brand. Is your camera operator a teddy bear? I'll have you know that your adopted brother Theodore is a member of the Interplanetary Cinematographers Guild. Okay, literally everything about this situation makes me hesitate to ask this, but I could use some advice. Do you remember Nina, Nina's daughter from TNN? Well, if you want a girl to like you, you just need to- I cannot adequately emphasize how much that is not the problem I'm having right now. As quickly as he can, Tom Thompson relates the whole sordid yet riveting history of Radio Free Shangri-La to his one-time mentor. I see. But I still don't understand why they had to be naked. Exactly. I wondered the same thing myself. Well, whenever I had to face a rival who seemed to have all the advantages, I fell back on the three U's. Unsettle, undermine, use up. Make her doubt herself, slowly attack her weaknesses, and find a way to take her strengths for your own. Hmm. But that won't be enough. You're going to need this. I want you to install this into Radio Free Shangri-La's soundboard. Is that a cassette tape? That's right. It's a sound effects cassette. I developed all the effects myself based on the sounds in old Xeon radio dramas. They're amazing. Play these on your broadcast and they will increase your ratings several times over. And now the recap for The Girl from Core 3, Part 2. A mass of Neo-Zeon soldiers are ready and waiting when Cicero docks with Core 3. Their mission? To subdue the Ayug and the Rebellion. But the Gundam team and the rebel leadership are one step ahead, easily evading their pursuers and making their way to a secret hideout. Working on a plan to rescue Rutina, El, and Rue, and free Cicero, Bicho wishes they could just blast Taman's base with the Nail Argama's Mega Particle Beam Cannon, but the damage to the colony would put too many civilian lives in danger. Nevertheless, it gives Eno an idea. What if they fired on the docking module instead? Hurutu and several armed guards escort Rutina, El, and Rue to the basement of Haman's current base. While they are locked in a cell, guards posted outside, Pudutu is granted an audience with Minerva and Haman, Kiara, Ni, and Lance flanking the dais. Pudutu and Haman size each other up, both guarded. Pudutu feels too much pressure to act now, while Haman orders Pudutu to subdue the Cicero rebels, but thinks angrily to herself that Glemmy has been clever to get a cyber new type so close to her. 
the rebel plan is set in motion. The miners mount an attack inside Cicero, driving the Neo-Zeon forces back out of the asteroid. Beach and Mondo launch in mobile suits and immediately attack the mobile suits patrolling around Cicero and Core 3, catching them off guard and mowing down each enemy pilot who crosses their path, until a swarm of Neo-Zeon mobile suits arrive. Dashing behind a small asteroid, they send out two dummies that look just like their own mobile suits, and the enemy chases after the dummies. It was all cover anyway. While the enemy fought Bicha and Mondo, Ino and Judo were sneaking away, their core fighters hidden in dummy asteroids. Ino makes for the Nail Argama, while Judo sneaks into Core 3 to rescue their friends. L is in the midst of trying to pick the lock on their cell door when Pudu 2 arrives and demands Rutina come with her. L and Rue try to protect Rutina and keep their group together, but Pudu 2 threatens to shoot them, and Rutina has no choice but to leave. After silently leading the girl out of the manor and through the grounds, Pudu 2 tells Rutina to run. Confused, Rutina insists she can't leave her friends and asks why Pudu 2 is doing this. But Pudu offers no explanation, only tells the girl she needs to think of herself, and strides off in the other direction. Unable to bear the idea of leaving Ellen Rue behind, Rutina turns back toward the mansion, only to run into Judo. He's been hiding in the woods, trying to figure out how best to get in and find his friends. Now, he has a guide. But before they can go, they are confronted by Kiara, Ni, and Lance. These three saw Pudu 2 free Rutina, and coupled with Judo's arrival on the scene, they are certain this is a sign that Glemmy is colluding with the rebels. Before Kiara can capture them, a cubile flies low over the lawn, scattering them all. It's Pudu 2! Several of Haman's pilots pursue her, ordering her to land, but she shoots them down and fires a missile at the mansion itself, while the Kubilei's funnels lay waste to Haman's ground forces. Kiara and her minders run to their mobile suits to intercept the rogue cyber new type, Judo and Rutina forgotten. Haman's usual calm is shaken, not by this attack, she knew Glemmy would betray her eventually, but by the news that while she is occupied on Core 3, Glemmy is attacking Axis. It is only a matter of time until the Neo-Zeon capital falls. Ni and Lance take on Pudu 2 and try to keep Kiara in check. They must overcome Pudu 2 without destroying the colony. The other elements of the rebel plan are proceeding smoothly. Ino reaches the Nail Argama and they fly into position, with Bicha and Mondo covering them. While alarm klaxons sound in the colony, the miners overrun the outnumbered soldiers in Cicero, forcing them back to the docking module. Rutina guides Judo through the now dark halls of the manor to the basement where they can hear El and Rue yelling for help. Once freed, there is no time for happy reunions. They run, and the hall collapses behind them. As they sprint upstairs and towards the exit, they run headlong into Haman, Minevah, and their guards and attendants. Judo and Haman aim their handguns at each other, but it's a standoff. When the wall next to them cracks, Judo jumps forward without thinking, knocking Haman and Minevah clear before the wall caves in. A mobile suit hand reaches through the breach in the wall, there to take Haman and Minevah to safety. Kiara and her wingmen escort them to the Sadalan, and in frustration, Pudutu launches more missiles and completely demolishes the manor. 
Judo and company get out just in time and escape to a nearby linear car station where Judo stashed a core fighter. Out in space, they meet up with Bicha and Mondo, who will take El, Rue, and Rutina to safety. When a hole appears in the colony and the Kubele emerges, Judo takes the double Zeta from Bicha and goes to confront Purutu. She laughs at how brazenly he confronts her and seems eager to fight. But just as she's about to attack, a vision of Puru appears, arms wide, blocking her. Judo tries to talk to Puru too, appealing to the good person that he is sure is there, asking if she saved Rutina because the girl from Core 3 reminds her of Puru, or even reminds her of herself. When Puru too sees the rest of the Gundam team slip away, she thinks Judo's talk was all just a trick, and attacks. He evades and keeps talking, then realizes he needs to get clear. The nail Argama will fire its mega particle beam cannon any moment, and they are in the path of fire. He even shouts a warning to his opponent, but Pudutu doesn't trust him and is almost killed when the beam strikes. Her escape pod is shot clear, but the Kubele is completely destroyed. Watching Cicero drift away, Haman decides she can afford to lose one mining asteroid. Her focus now must be on Glemmy and Axis. Rutina and Roy are reunited, the miners are freed, and the crew of the Nail Argama set their sights on finishing the war. I saw on Twitter that you noticed something cool about one of the mobile suits in this episode. That happens so rarely that I feel like I need to ask you, what did you notice? What was so cool? It's honestly such a small thing, but there are a couple of shots during the fight between Nii and Lance and Pudu 2, where they really zoom in on the Gaz-L and Gaz-R, and they have scroll work all over the edges of some of the panels. Gold filigree all over them. I suppose it could be filigree. That's a possibility. I assume it's painted on, but... I mean, well, I guess it's Axis. They have a lot of gold. So filigree would mean that it's actual, like, gold wire or pieces of gold uh, done in little designs and, like, inlaid into the panels versus scroll works usually painted on, though it can be carved also. Point being, there's (laughs) an elaborate golden gold-looking design all over the edges of some of the panels and weapons. And given the size of mobile suits, the fact that they have these huge, uh, very paintable, very decoratable surfaces, and yet most of them have no art, no call sign, no graffiti, no like nothing on them, does feel a bit strange to me. Uh, Plenty of weapons of war throughout history have been decorated by the people using them. Sure. And we did see, you know, the Hyakushiki does have its, um, the Hyaku kanji on each shoulder. The Bawu has the kanji on Mm. it as well. But those are exceptions. It's rare. And I think these uh, designs on the two gazes are the first purely decorative ones. They're not the name of the machine or the person piloting it or an abbreviation thereof. This serves no purpose but decoration. 
I do think the um, gold detailing indicates that these are the mobile suits used by the royal guards. One of them refers to the pair of them as the royal guards when they're fighting Pudutu. And I assume they're not the only ones. I assume that those two guys who get crushed by rubble in this episode were probably also royal guards. It's basically a joke at this point that I cannot tell me and Lance apart. <laughs> well, in fairness to you, until this episode, they have never been referred to separately. There has been no way within the show to know which one is which. I know they have slightly different outfits, and so in theory are discernible. Well, and um, one of them wears his hair pulled back, and one of them wears his hair like down and parted in the middle, kind of like a, I don't know, early 2000s boy band. I think it's only partially down. I think he has a ponytail too. Yeah, but the um, the the front hairs. He's got bangs. Are they still bangs if they split in the middle and go down the sides of the forehead? I think so. Well, then yeah, he's got bangs. And then his brother pulls his hair back and has sort of a mild widow's peak. But like I said, this is the first episode where they actually do uh, get distinguished enough that you can tell them apart. The one with bangs and the red uh, gauze mobile suit is Lance, which means the other one must be knee. It occurs to me, I think there was also some sort of decorative carving or some decorative designs on the knight's armor mobile suit from first Gundam. Mm, the Gyan. Yeah. I think the Gyan also had, in some shots, <laughs> not mm -hmm. consistently, but some decorative designs. It's the sort of mobile suit that would. Yeah, we have this running affectation from Zeon, from Neo Zeon, of, ah, well, we're going to take this high-tech machine that for the most part, when other people design it, it's a lot of sharp edges, flat surfaces. It's very geometric and industrial. But we're going to make it look like medieval knight's armor. And the fact that we have a royal guard here and... You know, perhaps Haman is moving towards setting up the Neo-Zeon government so that it's explicitly a constitutional monarchy, that the monarch is explicitly a figurehead instead of just understood by everyone, but not actually a figurehead. <laughs> Certainly, it will be a challenge for Haman to maintain control when Minerva is old enough to assert herself unless she can take steps in the meantime to make this sort of regency situation she's got permanent. Prime Minister Haman. Here's the thing, though. I think Haman is already losing her grip. Well, I mean, Glemmy's coup here, certainly. Right, but even beyond that, I felt very confused by Haman in this episode and came to the conclusion at the end that Haman is full of and has always been. You know, her whole demeanor through this whole show has been that she is a step ahead of everybody, She's onto them. She has her own defenses and counter plans. They never catch her off guard. They never really surprise her. She always gets away, you know, with the exception of when she shoots Lena and is confronted by Judo's like out of control new type power, and that really shakes her. But the rest of the time, there is this uh, controlled and competent visage. I do want to point out, I went back recently, I was looking at some of my notes from Zeta, and I realized there's another time when Haman has a similar breakdown, like that one with Judo. And it's towards the end of Zeta when uh, Camille basically tries to ambush Haman and take her out. 
and they have a battle. It's when Camille and Haman have that that connection and they can see into each other's pasts and see how lonely each other is. Um, but Haman is not able to overcome Camille. And it's after that that she has this scene of her just like slouched in her chair in her room with all the lights off, just sort of staring into space. And I only bring this up because I think it shows that whenever Haman's aura of invincibility gets punctured, that's when she sort of collapses. I suppose my point is that through most of Double Zeta, the question is, is it simply a front or is she really that in control? And this episode puts me solidly in camp. It's all a front and it always has been. She feels the pressure from Pudutu, and she knows that Pudutu is a part of Glemmy's plan, does nothing about her. And then she's not surprised by Pudutu's attack, but she is surprised, very, to hear that Glemmy is attacking Axis, and that Axis is not going to hold out much longer. And like, I'm sorry, but that seems like a very obvious tack to go, you know, tie up Haman someplace else and then go take the actual like center of power. <laughs> and she does say that she knew Glemmy was eventually going to make some kind of move. She's not surprised that Glemmy made a move, but she is surprised that he moved now. And then she blames Judo's aura for the reason <laughs> why she was slow to respond to all of this and why like, oh, it's not that I made mistakes. Obviously it's Judo's aura completely messed me up and it's not my fault. Clouding my mind and slowing us down. That's such an interesting scene there because um, for us, the audience, I think you and I both um, find the notion that Judo projected a psychic barrier around this uh, mansion in order to prevent Haman from reacting quickly to Pudutu's attacks is um, implausible, laughable. <laughs> uh, and yet when she says this to Judo, he reacts as though she's correct. He has this kind of like smirk as though she's figured out his masterful plan. Oh, that wasn't my read of that at all. <laughs> what, what did you think he was doing? I thought he was smirking at how ridiculous she's being. I mean, right after she says this, he mentions that she felt something. Mm-hmm. That's part of why I thought he was reacting as though she was correct, because his reaction is to like smile confidently and say, ah, so you felt my pressure or something like that. The translation has it as him saying as a question, you were feeling the strain. I guess I interpreted it more as he wouldn't have necessarily known that she was slow to react or or the rest of it unless she told him like she does <laughs> just then. <laughs> And the idea that she's making mistakes and kind of floundering and feeling the pressure of the situation is gratifying to him. That's how I understood that scene. Maybe so. You know, looking over those lines again and thinking about the scene again, I can see how your interpretation would also make sense. <laughs> I was actually thinking about how in Double Zeta, we see new type powers portrayed a little bit differently. Um, they start to feel magical, but not magical in the way that magic is often depicted today with like lightning bolts and fireballs and force shields or whatever. Um, but the way it shows up in like myth often and old legends and the sagas where 
magic like clouds people's minds and slowly corrupts people or um, subtly influences effects in good ways or or leads people down particular paths. It's the kind of invisible background magic that you see in, for example, Lord of the Rings. Although you do actually get some like force fields sometimes, they do that too. But usually through the intervention of some technology. I saw a, um, a thread on Twitter this week that was talking about uh, actually a resistance to demands that people's magic systems in books are explained. And I realized, I think I often talk about new typism as if I want it to be a magic system that is fully explained. I am completely content with a magic system where certain things are not fleshed out, where certain things are implied or confusing or unclear even to the characters. But I, I do feel as though in the best fantasy, even those somewhat inexplicable magic systems have an internal consistency or an internal logic that makes them feel as though they make sense, even if it's not, you know, A plus B equals magic spell. And it's that feeling of understanding that I often feel new typism is lacking. I think it's a fairly safe bet to say that no one who is writing these shows really understands what it means to be a new type. Yet another point in the Haman is delusional column. At the very end, well, almost the very end, Judo sees a wall collapsing. He dives forward to knock Haman, Minevah, and Minevah's maid out of the way. Haman proceeds to insist that this is an indicator that they are of a kind, that they have so much in common, that they clearly, their subconscious is called to each other. At this point, the fact that she keeps using this same approach to judo and it's continually not working and she's not changing it and she's so insistent about it just seems kind of desperate. Hmm. Like she's desperate for an ally or at the very least afraid of judo and desperate not to have him opposite her. Maybe she really believes it. How? He put, his, <laughs> he put himself in danger to save his enemy because he didn't think... Well, he didn't think. He just reacted. His powerful bond with Haman drew him to her in that moment of crisis. Or he didn't want to see a young girl get crushed by a falling building. Again, since that just happened like a week ago yeah. for him. And I cannot imagine Haman ever risking her life to save any individual person. Her best friend, like, <laughs> if she could even have such a thing, which she can't. They but. have a very special, unique, sacred bond where he does whatever she wants him to, and she accepts that. It's, I mean, it's a great relationship dynamic. Like I said, at this point, Haman feels super delusional to me and not at all in control of the situation. And yet, just an episode ago, she seemed totally in control. Right, but it was all a ruse. A lie. A facade. An illusion. I see Judo's um, thoughtless and selfless action to save Haman, etc. there as being of a kind with his attempts to save Puru 2 at the end of the episode. Both um, 
literally by telling her to get out of the way of the high mega cannon before they fire it, but also spiritually um, to try to get her to walk back from the abyss and to embrace the parts of her that she's been hiding. I don't think his efforts with Pudu 2 are impulsive at all. I think after having effectively saved LP Pudu, he knows it can be done, right? LP Pudu was such a mess and such a danger, frankly, to all of them when she first joined them. But by the time she saved Judo from Pudu 2, she had come around. She had made friends. She sure. was not a purely selfish being. Uh, he's done it before with someone who looks exactly <laughs> like Pudu too, which I'm sure, you know, they are obviously different people, but it's probably hard for him to wrap his head around the idea that they might not have things in common. I mean, I think it's actually quite remarkable and very well done. I, I would give the show a lot of credit for this, that they don't have judo like try to force Puru 2 into an LP Puru shaped box. That is the kind of thing that Camille would have done, I think. Um, but judo really doesn't. Judo is willing to meet Puru 2 as she is and recognize the person that she is instead of trying to project that other girl onto her. But it's also remarkable that even though Puru 2 killed LP Puru in front of Judo, that he doesn't really hold that against her. Like, he's trying to save her despite that. That's part of why I see him saving Haman in the same light. Despite all the horrible things she has done, despite the danger that she represents to them, he still sees in her a person who might be different, could be better. We don't see him appealing to Haman directly in the same way in this episode, but he has before, and he might again. One thing Pudu 2 has in common with LP Pudu, highly suspicious of people's motives when people are nice to them. Is that weird? That seems normal. I didn't say it was weird. I only said they have it in common. And it's a little heartbreaking here because... It does feel as though maybe Judo is starting to get through to her, and then she sees his friends get away and immediately thinks, oh, you don't actually mean any of what you're saying to me. It's just a trick. It's just a ploy. She has probably been deceived before. What was your read on her reaction to Minerva? That's fascinating. <laughs> right? Because she bursts into this room. She's got Minerva at gunpoint, which, like, she doesn't put that gun away. She, like, holds Minerva at gunpoint for a long moment there. And she's like, oh, Minerva Zabi. That's strange. Right. Something. She's feeling something about looking at Minerva. And part of me wonders if she's not under orders to try to assassinate Minerva. Mm hmm. And so she's wondering if that's her moment. I think if you were looking at this episode specifically and nothing else, and just thinking about this episode, that's the most likely explanation because we know Puru has come here with orders to attack. When they were in the throne room, it looked like she was wanted to, trying to, but couldn't overcome that new type of pressure. Um, and so that does seem to be the case. There were two other things that I thought of. The first being, they are about of an age, right? 
they're around the same age. Well, and later we see that Puru too has this soft spot for Rutina, who is also around the same age. I thought that part of Pudutu's reaction was looking at this girl who she ought theoretically to have more in common with, but they have completely different lives. Mm. That Minerva is completely sheltered from the war, lives this completely sheltered existence with no responsibilities. I mean, Minerva is a caged bird, but that might look pretty appealing if you're a child soldier who has been undergoing new type training and indoctrination for as long as you can remember. Well, exactly the same way that LP Puru looked at Lena when Lena was Glemmy's prisoner. It's also possible, I mean, we learn in this episode that Puru too is still kind of struggling with having killed LP Puru, and not for nothing, Minavazabi and the Purus look rather similar. That was going to be my next point. I'm not sure I agree that she's struggling with having killed LP Pudu, but... Judo uh, says she is, and Judo is always right. The way the camera cuts to Pudu 2, cuts to Minerva, cuts back to Pudu 2, you really notice the resemblance. And there are a lot of red-headed women in Gundam. That doesn't necessarily mean anything. Definitely more redheads in Gundam than in the general population. But we also don't know the Pudu's ancestry. And I wouldn't put it past a Glemmy to decide that his super soldiers should all have like Zabi genetics <laughs> or something. I mean, he definitely has some weird predilections, right? He's already decided that he wants all of his super soldiers to be like 12 year old girls. You brought up that you think Pudu is, is feeling some feelings about LP Pudu. Judo posits that that is why she let Rutina go, which seems reasonable to me. So this is complicated. I did find the exchange between Pudutu and Haman very interesting in the throne room. Haman asks her if she and LP Pudu are twins or were twins. And she says, oh, I don't know her. I don't know LP Pudu, which they never met actually except for in mobile suits fighting. Or maybe in training before the cold sleep, but that seems unlikely. They didn't recognize each other at all when they fought, and I I don't know, if they had trained together, I assume they would have. There was so much memory manipulation in Zeta that it's hard to trust something like that, but also Double Zeta hasn't really done any of that, and so I would expect at least some kind of you know signposting if they were going to do that. This is also just one of those conversations between two characters where every other thought I have is, what does each of you know? Do you believe that? Or are you just saying that? Are you trying to suss out information about this other person? What do you know? What do you not know? <laughs> does Haman really not know that they're clones? Are they clones? I assume they're clones. It's possible that the two Purus are clones, although since they look to be the same age, Unless Xeon has some kind of accelerated aging technology, which we have no reason to think they have, then they must have been, like, born at the same time. They must have been cloned around the same time, which means they had to have known that they wanted more than one Puru before she was even born. That's true. Which is a major wrinkle with the cloning theory. I mean, you can overcome it in various ways. Um, but I wonder if 
there wasn't a program to identify girls who looked kind of like Minavazabi at a young age because it might be very useful to have Minavazabi body doubles for one reason or another. And once the Axis state had acquired all of these girls, I mean, naturally, it's Gundam. They're going to test them for new type of potential and do weird experiments on them. I mean, I'm going to humor your obsession with body doubles. <laughs> you just really want them to be really into having body doubles for everyone. And that's fine. That's your thing. It's. <laughs> I'm just saying it's a lot easier to find a body double than it is to make a clone. Yes, but we are talking about Gundam here <laughs> and science fiction. If you asked me to bet right now, I would put money on the background in the story being that they are clones. Or at least, uh, how do I put this? Not necessarily that they are both clones of some third party, but that they are from like an embryo that was cloned so that it would produce identical however many poodoos hmm anyway uh <laughs> until the show decides to tell us we're just going to argue about this indefinitely <laughs> and hopefully the show tells us before y'all get bored of hearing about it hmm. the other thing you mentioned was rutina and why does poodoo 2 help rutina key to this scene is a question she asks rutina if she has any siblings Mind you, she's already freed Rutina by the time she asks this. Like, she's already let her out. <laughs> uh, but she doesn't ask about other family, friends, connections. She asks, do you have a sibling? It is a curious choice of question. And then she says, you need to look out for yourself. <laughs> well, that makes perfect sense for Puru, who is accustomed to looking out for herself. Do you think the sibling question is an indication that she's thinking about LP Pudu? I think it is. And I think the non-textual parts of the way this scene is put together suggest that Pudu 2 is really struggling with something here. She doesn't face Rutina during this conversation. She turns away from her to ask this question. And we see emotions racing across her face, even if they're never entirely clear. I think the the sibling relationship is one of Double Zeta's major themes. How many siblings have there been in this show, of the biological and of the found kind? And I think Puru 2, finding herself alone in the world with really only, like, I don't know, Glemmy to rely on, is like longing for somebody like Puru, somebody so like her and yet different. I think she wants a sibling and feels bereft without one. Or feels that the sacrifice of Pudutu was essential for her own survival. You know, she may regret it, but also feel that it was necessary, that she had to do it. Hence telling Rutina, you have to think about yourself. Yeah, you could read it that way. Rather than you have to think about yourself because you don't have a sibling who will look after you. Yeah, because this is right after Rutina is talking about how she doesn't want to leave without Ellen Rue. She wants to go back for her friends. And Pudutu is telling her, no, like, no, <laughs> you're not getting this. You need to run away now. I mean, that makes me think about twins, like, killing each other in the womb, where only one can survive. Metaphorically killing each other. This is not a... <laughs> 
fisticuffs <laughs> type situation. Well, the mobile suits are like metaphorical wombs in some ways. It works. I don't know if it was supposed to be funny, but the way Pudutu laughs in this episode ha, ha, ha. felt so put on. There were a few moments in this episode where the voice work was kind of off. When we first watched it, you pointed to one scene where it sounded like Bicha was being voiced by a completely different person. Yes. His voice is so deep in that first scene when they're in the rebel hideout and they're talking about their plans. It sounded like a completely <laughs> different voice actor. And the art in this episode is curious as well because the art for the mobile suit fights is so good. It's crisp, it's clean, it's detailed, great movement, great camera work. But then uh, the people's, the human characters' faces were like practically unrecognizable. In one case, I thought they actually used the, I'm going to assume, limited time and budget to great effect, which is the group of soldiers who go into Cicero to root out the rebels. All of their eyes are shadowed. You mm -hmm. don't see anybody's eyes whatsoever. But it works. It feels like an artistic choice. Sure, although it's a very strange artistic choice for Gundam because that really like robs those soldiers of any sense of their humanity, which is unusual. Normally, Gundam gives even the grunts at least so much as eyes. Still, it is extremely striking. Also, uh, not for nothing, they are a group of soldiers being sent to deal with what could be understood as a labor strike in a mine. Uh, so, you know, not a group of people typically thought of with fondness or... Uh, yeah, not the most sympathetic soldiers. Yeah, it's on our list of potential research topics, but uh, throughout a fairly big chunk of U.S. history, soldiers were sent to deal with labor strikes. And there were some rather vicious battles and also the largest post-Civil War uprising was a mine strike in... West Virginia, I think, the Battle of Blair Mountain. Anyway, uh, <laughs> soldiers v. striking miners is absolutely a historical reference. Sure. And of course, you and I are most familiar with the U.S. context, but this is all over the world. You know, especially when you go back to before the uh, rise of the militarized police forces that exist today, the army was the force of choice for crushing anything that threatened the state's interests. So while I agree with you that it's unusual for Gundam to sort of rob the grunts of their humanity, uh, given some of what we've seen in Gundam so far that we think is tied to organized labor history and labor protests and things like that, that we're getting the sort of spooky faceless soldiers in this particular episode feels pretty apt and consistent. You brought up some of the production issues when I mentioned Pudutu's laugh, and perhaps I was giving them too much credit. I mostly thought that the laughing felt a little forced and a little fake because it was meant to. Mm. Because then later we have Judo accusing Pudutu of acting tough. You need to stop acting tough and be honest. That makes sense. Certainly there's a lot going on in her confrontation with Kiara and the way the two of them talk about and to each other. And those forced laughs come up in the fight with Kiara, with Nian Lance, with Judo. It's sort of a, a repetition throughout the episode. 
despite the widely repeated characterization of Double Zeta as first half funny slapstick, second half serious tragedy, the comedy is still very much there. It can be a little understated sometimes, but for instance, in this episode, when Kiara, Ni, and Lance are sneaking around watching first Puru and Rutina and then Judo, the way Kiara misunderstands the situation is very funny, but even better than that is Ni and Lance holding up like branches to pretend to be trees. And then when Kiara dashes out to whip Judo, this all happens very quickly. I only noticed it when I was going through with a fine-toothed comb. But when Nia and Lance first jump out to back her up, they're still holding the branches. And then they have to throw them away so that they can draw their pistols. <laughs> Plus, we get a few moments of levity with Alan Rue uh, when Judo shows up and shouts through the door that he's there for them. They both clasp hands and say, Kami no koe! which means the voice of God, but they're saying it in kind of a silly way, and I assume they're, they're being silly because they're relieved. It's nice seeing them together being friends since they graded on each other so much early on, but now they're working together to orchestrate their little escape at the beginning, which doesn't work, but is still pretty nicely orchestrated. And they manage that whole plan without speaking a word to each other. That's just meaningful looks. Yeah, or it might be new type stuff. You never know. I don't actually think it is, but hey, you never know. I really liked Elle hugging Judo after they bust the door open, and then when they all run away, I'll be like, hey, we were having a touching reunion. We were having a moment. But how many times in this show has Judo snuck around in the grass, like outside a temple or outside a mansion? This has got to be at least the fourth time. Lots of sneaking here. And also, speaking of which, you couldn't possibly have known last episode when you called this place Haman's Beach Mansion just how right you were. Because, I mean, look at this episode right down to two of the members of the crew get captured and... Held in a basement. And then somebody has to break them out and Judo sneaks around in the woods outside a mansion. Like, it's, it's the Beach Mansion episode again. They even call it a yashiki. Yashiki being mansion, just like beach mansion. And that's not the only callback. The scene where Puru is like kneeling before Haman and her hand kind of twitches like she's going to make a move felt like a conscious callback to when Haman tried to assassinate Jamatov Hyman in Zeta. The first time we watched this episode through, you mentioned that Purutu's dress uniform, the one that she wears for this same audience that you're describing, uh, looked like Char's uniform from First Gundam. Mm -hmm. uh, do you still think so after watching it again? Do you think it's meant to be a callback to Char's uniform? I think it has to be. I mean, there are some there are some differences, right? It's not identical, but this is the first time since Char that we have seen a Xeon officer in the red uniform with the cape, and. Might it be significant that she dresses up like Shar when she's going to assassinate the leader of Zeon and maybe Azabi? Do you know what my favorite part of this episode was? What was your favorite part of this episode? The plan! Because this time they actually had a plan? Yes! And it was a good one and it worked! And it was more complex 
than basically any other plan we've seen anybody enact in this show. Because you have these three different groups who are all doing different things, arguably maybe four groups, because the miners are pushing all the soldiers out of Cicero. And then they have to hold the line at the docking module. Eno has to get back to the Nail Argama and tell them to target the docking module. Bicha and Mondo have to be a distraction while this other stuff is going on. Judo has to infiltrate and save their friends. And everybody is going about their piece and it all makes sense. And they've timed it all out. It's on a schedule. They probably synchronized watches at some point. The rebels are clearly very well organized and pretty well resourced, frankly. And that's conveyed with very little time in the footage, but the fact that they are able to blow up parts of the mine as the soldiers get to it, the fact that they have hideouts with secret codes for access, they have intel, they have, you know, that this isn't just some fly-by-night operation, they are very organized. That very brief scene of them overwhelming the soldiers with their, like, charge behind the uh, the mobile worker is great. So good. Because, yeah, the soldiers are trained soldiers and have guns, and very few of the miners have guns. But there are a lot more miners, and they have pipes and pickaxes, and they just overrun the force that's been sent to attempt to subdue them. And the Gundam team is basically everybody doing the best that they've ever done <laughs> and working together really well. We have Bicha express that idea that he wishes they could just destroy the colony with Haman in it, and everybody very rightly points out that that would cause unacceptable civilian casualties. I have to stop you for a second because this is something that we talked about previously, but which got uh, unfortunately destroyed by a problem with our recording. Oh, that's right. And so we haven't actually talked about Beecha's bloodthirstiness, his desire to shoot the big gun at every target. And here's the thing, though. I, uh, I've thought about it since the first time we talked about it that got eaten. It was the first time I think we were both uh, rightly horrified and also considered it kind of part and parcel to all the times that Bicha had tried to get Judo killed, and it just sort of seemed like some running callousness, and it's definitely that. But I also remember hearing conversations and, and hearing people talk about conflicts, even in our own day and age, and when they are frustrated with how complicated it is, frustrated by the lack of progress, like there's often a person who says even if they don't mean it i wish we could just like nuke it into oblivion and be done you know yeah i mean it's the it's the gordian knot problem right like you have this seemingly intractable solution and sometimes you just want to cut it with a sword right so i'm not sure how much bicha really means it when he says that he wishes they could certainly he doesn't argue for it once they tell him no and he might be saying i wish we could fully understanding all the caveats. I wish we could, but I know we can't because. But I don't necessarily think the line betrays particular intent or bloodthirstiness <laughs> so much as frustration with their current situation and the wish for a simple solution. Uh, but Bloodthirsty Beecha the Backstabber is such a good nickname. Cat-eyed Capricious Chiara and Bloodthirsty Beecha the Backstabber. Eno is the one who comes up with their plan. Bicha and Mondo fight very well. They have the dummies that look like the mobile suits, which I thought was the coolest. That's <laughs> really clever. Such a great, again, very small thing, 
but uh, works so well for them in this situation and is absolutely a thing that you would try to do. And we've even seen dummies of mobile suits before, but they're usually not moving around. They're usually just kind of stationed in places. And so the idea of shooting them off so that they look as though they're flying away is quite clever. Well, and somebody had to think like, oh, linear cars run on the outside of the colony. They must have their own like power and oxygen. Uh, They must be sealed against vacuum. So even if we can't use a ship to escape, we can get into a linear car and take it out like that. I thought that was brilliant. And what's really great about all of this is each area where someone is excelling is an area where we have seen them specifically struggle in the past. You know, we saw Beecha steal the double Zeta in the past because he wanted to be the hero and then struggle to use it. But now here he gets the double Zeta as part of their plan and he can use it fine. But he's also willing to give it back to Judo when that's what's necessary. Not part of that plan, but very intriguing and I think a good place for us potentially to wind up discussion on the episode. So much of this season, basically the entirety of it, has been consumed with the war between Neo-Zeon and the Federation. And yet in a single episode, it feels as though we have seamlessly shifted our focus to this internecine conflict between Glemi and Haman. Obviously, Ayug is still there. Ayug is still trying to end the war. But that no longer feels like the primary conflict. Mm-hmm. And I think we see with the ending of this episode, with Cicero detaching the miners, basically inventing syndicalism for the universal century, um, and then saying, oh, we'll, we'll go off and we'll find some other colony to dock with. Um, we see here that perhaps it's not going to be possible for Judo and company to save the world to change the course of the universal century, to end the war completely. But they can make things better on an individual and small group scale. They can help the Cicero miners. They can help Puru. They can try to help Chiara. And now Tom's continuing research on the tale of the Heike. Welcome back to our podcast within a podcast about the tale of the Heike and how it may have inspired some of the characters and developments in Zeta and Double Zeta. This is part three of this research piece. If you're just joining us, I recommend you go back and listen to the previous two episodes. When characters within the tale of the Heike talk about the escalating pattern of violence that destabilized Japan in their era, they speak in both political and religious terms. They believed that they were living in the final age, when the tenets of religious law broke down and the world careened towards oblivion. All was corruption, dissipation, and immorality. The old temples were abandoned, their foundations homed wolves and foxes. The sacred scrolls rotted in their reliquaries, and demons walked the halls of the seven great temples of Nara. The red fences of the shrines were weathered and broken. Nothing was left but the straw ropes that marked the places where the gods dwelt. 
A few weeks ago, I called the Genpei War apocalyptic because it brought the old world of the Heian era to a close and ushered in the age of the warrior, the era of rule by bow and sword. But while the war provides a convenient point of demarcation between those two eras, the changes were already happening, and basically everybody knew it. The tale of the Heike is replete with formulaic language, artifacts of its origins in the oral tradition, and there is a particular formula they use when talking about how things got to be so bad. In the introduction to his translation of the Heike, Royal Tyler describes this formula as like the refrain within the tale. They say, Since the days of Hogan and Heiji, the Tyra family has had nothing but prosperity. Since Hogan and Heiji, I have risked my life for you, my lord. Since Hogan and Heiji, the ways of men have only grown more degenerate. Since Hogan and Heiji, the Tyra have forgotten their duty to the emperor. And so on. Hogan and Heiji are named eras in Japanese history. In the year 645, the emperor Kotoku adopted the Chinese practice of designating a new era and giving it a name. The first one was Taika, the era of great change. This new era name signaled and celebrated the emperor's intention to enact sweeping reforms throughout his empire. His successors continued the practice. Eras could be declared at any time and for any reason to mark an event, to celebrate the ascension of a new emperor, to appease an angry spirit, and so on. An era might last for decades, or for months. Dates are recorded as the such-and-such -such year of such-and-such -such era. This practice continues today. Gundam Double Zeta was made in the last years of Showa, and this podcast was recorded in the third year of Rewa. However, since 1868, the system has been standardized, each emperor's reign is one era that starts when he ascends to the throne and ends when he leaves it. While an emperor lives, he is known by his name. But when an emperor dies, he is referred to by the name of his era. Thus, in 1989, the emperor Hirohito became Showa. When the characters in the tale talk about Hogen and Heiji, though, they aren't really referring to those eras, which occurred back to back and together covered about six years, Rather, they are referring obliquely to the Hogan and Heiji disturbances, which took place within those eras. And in fact, you already know about the Hogan disturbance. That is the name that got attached to the power struggle between rival emperors Sutoku and Go Shirakawa in the wake of their father Toba's death. Besides securing Go Shirakawa's power and giving him the opportunity to abdicate and rule behind the scenes, the Hogan conflict also affected a change in the leadership for the two warrior clans, Taira and Minamoto, as the older generation backed the wrong horse and paid for their mistake with their lives. Maybe in another world, one where the great temples were not infested by demons, that could have been the end of it. The usurper defeated, a vigorous retired emperor in charge of the government, and assured of the support of his loyal vassals. The status quo restored. But here, in his moment of triumph, Go Shirakawa made a serious mistake. He lavished honors and responsibilities on the leader of his Taira allies, Kiyomori, and snubbed the Minamoto leader, Yoshitomo. 
this insult probably stung all the more because the Minamoto were pretty sure that they had done the most and suffered the most to secure Go Shirakawa's throne. It was Yoshitomo who set the fires and won the battle, while Kiyomori was busy riding around the enemy fortress, looking for the weakest possible enemies to fight. And remember, it was Yoshitomo who executed his own father and brothers for their part in the rebellion. So why did Go Shirakawa alienate one of his most important vassals after this show of almost egregious loyalty? There are a few possible reasons. It could have been personal. Maybe he simply liked Kiyomori better. It could have been what companies today would call a culture fit. The Taira are universally portrayed in the tale of the Heike as being more refined, more sophisticated, and more integrated into court life. Kiyomori's father had risen from mere provincial governor to become a highly esteemed court official. Kiyomori himself was part courtier and part warrior, a political animal through and through. Perhaps by comparison, the rough and ready Yoshitomo, while more skilled with bow and sword and horse, and despite his power and his imperial heritage, was viewed as something of a provincial bumpkin, unsuited to high honors. Or perhaps it was a savvy political play that backfired. It seems very plausible that Go Shirakawa would still be paranoid about the Fujiwara clan trying to reclaim the power they had once enjoyed over the empire and the emperor. Sure, retired emperors had effectively ruled the country since the reign of his great-great-grandfather, but the Fujiwara were still there. There still was a hereditary regent. And when Sutoku had gone into revolt, he had had an ambitious Fujiwara minister at his side. Even before Hogen and Heiji, when the power struggles in the capital broke out into open violence, the imperial and Fujiwara factions had increasingly seen the need to cultivate relationships with the warrior houses. The retired emperors, Toba especially, had favored the Taira, relying on their armed bands whenever force, or the threat thereof, was necessary. The Fujiwara responded by enlisting Minamoto warriors as armed guards. Evocatively, they were dubbed the claws and teeth of the Fujiwara. Perhaps Go Shirakawa felt that he could not trust a Minamoto like Yoshitomo. Or perhaps he simply felt that the Taira clan's longer history of service to the imperial faction merited the greater rewards. Whatever his reasons for distrusting Yoshitomo, Go Shirakawa was soon proven correct. No one can say whether Yoshitomo really was untrustworthy, or if his poor treatment in the aftermath of the Hogen disturbance drove him into rebellion. But in 1160, the first year of Heiji, and some three years after the end of the Hogen disturbance, Minamoto no Yoshitomo made common cause with an ambitious Fujiwara minister named Nobuyori. Nobuyori, interestingly, had once been Go Shirakawa's lover, but now he plotted to seize power for himself. When Taira no Kiyomori left the capital on pilgrimage, Nobuyori and Yoshitomo made their move. They raided the Sanjo Palace, where Go Shirakawa was living. They abducted the emperor, burned down the building, and killed most of those inside. Secretaries, ministers, high nobles, concubines, and common servants alike. The burning of the Sanjo Palace is recorded in the tale of Heiji, in grotesque and horrifying terms.
From the retired emperor's palace, the Minamoto forces then rushed to the emperor's palace and took him hostage as well. Then they moved on to the home of Michinori, a Fujiwara counselor whose powers and privileges Nobuyori had long coveted. Here, again, they killed everyone inside and executed Michinori. Now firmly in control of the imperial court, Nobuyori compelled the emperor to name him to the highest post in the government. For the first time in more than a century, the Fujiwara, through fire and blood and Minamoto steel, had the emperor back under their thumb. But they couldn't keep it. As soon as word of the coup reached him, Kiyomori gathered his forces and raced back to the capital. By subterfuge, the Taira managed to smuggle both the emperor and the retired emperor out of Minamoto custody. As soon as this was discovered, the Fujiwara Nobuyori fled at once, but the Minamoto stayed to fight. The battle was fierce, but indecisive. Kiyomori and Yoshitomo's eldest sons each led their respective vanguards and dueled personally inside the imperial palace itself. Then the Taira retreated, and the Minamoto, their blood up and seeing an opportunity for victory, charged out of their secure positions and into open battle. As soon as they were out of the palace, a second force of Taira soldiers occupied it and closed the doors against them. Minamoto reinforcements arrived, but whether because of loyalty to the emperor, uncertainty about how things were going to play out, or the same internal family rivalries that had animated the Hogan disturbance, these fresh fighters merely watched from a distance, until Yoshitomo's Minamoto were at last defeated, their force broken up and put to flight. Yoshitomo fled west with his surviving sons, hoping to regroup in his family's stronghold in Owari province. Along the way, his boys died or were separated from him, and he came with but a single retainer to the home of one of his hereditary vassals, the father-in-law of his last remaining retainer. In the early morning after their arrival, this retainer, a lord named Osada, murdered his son-in-law at the breakfast table and his lord Yoshitomo in the bath. He sent their heads to Kiyomori as a sign of his loyalty to the new regime. Yoshitomo's eldest son returned to the capital in disguise, hoping to avenge his family's honor by assassinating some high-ranked Taira. But he was discovered, arrested, and swiftly executed. Yoshitomo's second son had died and been buried during the hectic retreat. He, the Taira, located, disinterred, and mutilated. The upstart chancellor, Fujiwara no Nobuyori, was also captured and similarly decapitated. The Heiji disturbance played out a bit like a very small-scale version of the One-Year War. Yoshitomo's family, like the Zabis, had come from the provinces and seized control over the capital, in much the same way that Xeon forces occupied the earth. They had suddenly pounced on their enemies, and in the process committed atrocities that would long be remembered for their brutality. But they overplayed their hand and proved unable to meet the Tyra counterattack. In the chaos of battle and retreat, the family was almost wiped out. Only a few of Yoshitomo's youngest sons would survive, and they would endure long years of banishment out in the distant province of Izu. Izu, like the asteroid Axis, was poor, remote, a perfect dumping ground for political exiles.
The eldest of Yoshitomo's surviving sons was just 13 when he was banished at the end of the Heiji conflict, the same age as Haman Karn at the end of the One Year War. And now, Nina's much more fun research about the name of Kiara's mobile suit, the Gamalk. Since last episode, Kiara has been piloting a new mobile suit, the AMX-015 Gamalk. In katakana, the name is written Gemaruku, and Tom has a theory for where it might have come from, a very old word for cat. You may have heard the word grimalkin, the first recorded use, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, is in 1623 in Shakespeare's Macbeth. It means a cat, especially an old she-cat, and is sometimes contemptuously applied to a jealous or imperious old woman. It is also written as Greymalkin, and the first part, gre or grey, is probably derived from the color grey, while Malkin was a pet name for the female given names Maud and Mary, as well as a derogatory term for lower-class, untidy women, or women of questionable morality and behavior. To be grimalkinned is to be vexed by a grimalkin, similar to being henpecked. In katakana, grimalkin is rendered gurimarukin, close-ish to the mobile suit name, but not obviously its origin. However, for greymalkin, it'd be Gure Marukin and Gure Marukin to Ge Maruku is much closer. It just removed the ru and the n. And that's just a classic way of forming the names of mobile suits in Gundam. You drop some syllables, maybe you add one or shuffle them around a little bit. The show has already made a connection between Kiara and cats in calling her cat eyed or nekome. So that's one point in this theory's favor. I set out to research the term Grimalkin to see if there's any additional history and usage information that would explain how and why it inspired the name for Kiara's mobile suit. In addition to simply meaning cat in the sense of the very common domesticated companion animal, the term Grimalkin can also have magical overtones. The Grimalkin in Macbeth is a witch's familiar a devil or evil spirit in the guise of an animal. The Wikipedia page mentions that in Scottish legends, Grimalkin are fae, fairy cats that live in the highlands. In other tales, such as William Baldwin's Beware the Cat, the Grimalkin is a witch, shapeshifted into the form of a cat. Baldwin's Grimalkin has a monstrous appetite and eats a sheep, a cow, and a child before a peasant soldier kills her. During some of the witch hunts of the past, having a pet cat was considered evidence that a person was a witch. For a June bonus episode, I looked into Japanese cat idioms and noticed that many of the idioms I found characterized cats as sneaky, secretive, and deceitful. And the use of the word grimalkin to refer in particular to very old cats and potentially magical cats dovetails nicely with two Japanese yokai, or monsters, that sometimes have the form of cats, bakeneko and nekomata. Depending on the region and the specific folktales, bakeneko are either supernatural from the get-go, but look like mundane cats, or start out as mundane cats. 
They either gain power with age or become a bakeneko when they reach a specific age. I saw 7, 12, and 13 all mentioned, which I think are pretty old ages for cats, especially when you consider that this would have been hundreds of years ago <laughs> when people were not uh, feeding their pets in the same way that we do now. The length of their tail denotes their age, intelligence, and power, and they can grow as large as a human. The bakeneko frequently walk on their hind legs and can learn human languages. Plus, they have shape-shifting abilities, which they can use to disguise themselves as an ordinary cat, take the form of a human, and even take the form of their own master, living in their master's place. After eating them, of course. They cause curses and misfortune, in particular house fires, and can reanimate the dead using the bodies like puppets. And like the Grimalkin of Baldwin's story, they can eat things far larger than they are. The oldest, wiliest, and biggest bakeneko become nekomata. Denoted by their two tails, nekomata have the same abilities as bakeneko, but stronger. And while not all bakeneko are malicious towards humans, all nekomata are. They can summon fireballs, cause hauntings and poltergeist-like activity, and often hide in the mountains in the form of large cats, eating even larger prey, including humans. One source mentions that when they change into a human form, they usually appear as older women, another similarity to Grimalkin. So that is one possible explanation, drawing on both the connotations and characterizations of pet cats and the connection between cats and magic that appear in both European and Japanese traditions. The magic, of course, being the new typism. And at one point, you had proposed that Chiara is a bit like Haman's familiar. I still think that's the case. I think if Chiara is the cat, then Haman is the witch. Mm. And it's not even just Chiara's changeability, but also her overt sexiness. You know, the phrase, like a cat in heat. The way she rubs up on people. <laughs> there are, in fact, a lot of things about the way Chiara is written and drawn that fit with all of these sort of associations we have with cats, and then the new typism fits with the magic piece. And the way other characters talk about her, like when Elle calls her Boobzilla, or the way Purutu talks about her in this episode, there is a very strong sense that they are criticizing her for doing womanhood wrong, and in kind of a, a low-class way, which and it sounded from your introduction like that's also one of the ways the term Grimalkin can be used when yeah. you're talking about women. And Malkin as well. Uh, she's obviously not gray, she's not old, but she is one of the oldest women in this show. <laughs> and so there's that too. I can't know how the writer or designer responsible first heard the word Grimalkin, how that would have popped onto their radar or into their lexicon. It does make me wonder how Shakespeare is translated into Japanese, but that's something to look into another time. It's also worth noting that Tomino just a couple of years ago, and a lot of the staff from Double Zeta worked on Aura Battler Dunbine, which is heavily based on Celtic mythology. I also looked up Grimalkin in Japanese Wikipedia, and I found just one mention. 
Grimalkin was the name of the best buddy, favorite companion, longtime cat friend of Godolphin Arabian, one of the three stallions from whom all thoroughbred horses are descended. He is alleged to have been a pretty bad-tempered horse, with the cat Grimalkin as the one creature in the whole world who he actually liked. And the cat Grimalkin appears in the background, but still fairly prominently, in a famous painting of Godolphin Arabian. I found two different and contradictory histories about the pair, that Godolphin Arabian died first and Grimalkin soon after from loneliness and heartbreak, or that Grimalkin died first and afterwards Godolphin Arabian couldn't stand cats, wanted nothing to do with any other cat, and would try to trample any cats that came near him. Much of Godolphin Arabian's history is unknown, making him perfect fodder for fictionalized accounts like King of the Wind by Marguerite Henry. It's a children's book, with the horse, a boy caring for him, and the cat Grimalkin traveling from Morocco to France to England with many adventures along the way. Published in 1948, the book won a Newbery Medal, which is one of the most prestigious awards for children's literature in the United States. Interestingly, there is no mention of Grimalkin, the cat, on the English Wikipedia page for Godolphin Arabian, Neither does the page mention King of the Wind, yet the Japanese page mentions both. Horse racing and betting on horse races is hugely popular in Japan, with a centuries-long history, and the first thoroughbreds arriving in 1895. It seems very possible that someone involved in Gundam Double Zeta either through an interest in thoroughbred horse racing or through having read or heard about the book King of the Wind, had heard of a cat named Grimalkin. Next time on episode 3.42, The Puppet, we cover Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta episode 44 and... The title said what? Oh no. I said what I said. She speaks. Skills of an ex-delinquent. I liked Puru 2 better when she treated Glemmy with obvious disdain. Puru too affectionate, am I right? If you can sense Haman, she can sense you. Bless your heart. A regular, ordinary, normal, child queen. You Zeons are all the same. I'm the supreme cyber new type. I'll protect you. And, non je regrette rien. You will see the battlefield of new types. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is New York City Instrumental by Spinning Merkaba. Radio Free Shangri-La is performed by the MSB Players. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. 
You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at Gundam Podcast, on Facebook at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast, or by email at gundampodcast at gmail.com. Or why not share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting, The Tiger Bomb episodes were only bad because the creators were affected by Haman's corrupting aura. The effects may vary, but they include bad jokes, jerky animation, inexplicable death, and loss of cool. Out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. This week's Wrong Gundam Opinion was submitted by GundamDude464. Thanks, Gundam Dude. And thank you for listening. I liked this episode, but I don't know that I have a ton to say about it. <laughs> I don't know that I have a ton to say about it either. So that'll be cool. Okay. <laughs> Maybe it'll be a short <laughs> talk back for once. I haven't had one of those in a while. Yeah. No wonder you were suspicious of me when I was smiling at you earlier. <laughs> what does he know that I don't? He must be up to something. Plots, ploys, plans. I'm going to have to rephrase that, but it's... I'll, I'll just bleep you. Yeah. Tom is silent, but... I, I was not silent. I said, <laughs> hmm. There was a hit song about a racehorse in... Uh, when was it? 1975, when this racehorse retired. <laughs> a jockey sang it. And it's about the horse. And it was a hit. It was like <laughs> a really big deal. <laughs> horrifying terms. Grotesque and horrifying honks. <laughs> so much backstabbery. <laughs> Bless your heart. <laughs> <laughs>